Um, we are in a, a series of studies that we're doing right now that I'm calling Interactive, um, which is kind of humorous. It's based upon interactions that Jesus had with specific individuals during his earthly ministry. Um, but someone came up to me after our last study, which is two weeks ago now, and they said, you know, I came, but I was very timid because I really thought it was going to be interactive, like you were going to call on us and we were going to have to do things, and I'm really glad that you didn't do that. And so it isn't an interactive uh, thing between, I hope it's interactive in the sense that there's a connection happening uh, on some level, but uh, I'm not going to call on you, but really it's just a, a, um, a looking at interactions that Jesus had um, that were intentional and that speak to us today where we are. Now, uh, I have a message for you tonight. I believe that God wants to use it in your life, and I also believe that the devil doesn't want you to hear it. Um, and I know that because of the storm that blew in briskly last week that caused us to cancel, and then also the, the attempted uh, you know, wind that he threw upon us tonight as well and, uh, and, and everything. It's funny, you know, people talk about hell in the context of heat. You know, I, I really feel like it would be more of a deterrent if the Bible said that it was freezing cold. Because that's almost enough right there to get me saved. You know, if you tell me that there's always snow, it's winter all the time, like, I'm going to start listening about Jesus, you know, <laughs> maybe a little bit more. But anyways, so uh, I've had a couple of weeks to sit on this sermon because we didn't meet last week. And so that means um, it's either going to be really good because it's had a chance to season or it's spoiled uh, and it's going to be really bad. But either way, the message will come through, and I believe that God is going to use it and speak uh, through it. And so we're in John chapter, uh, well, we will be in John chapter 2 uh, for our Bible study uh, tonight. And so um, <clears throat> have you ever, uh, like me, felt like you might be missing something as a Christian? You kind of maybe look around and you see other people that have the same faith that you do. They uh, have the same Bible that you do. They might even go to the same church that you do. But it seems like they have something or they're experiencing something or they're enjoying something of their Christian faith that, that you are not, or at least maybe on the same level. And it seems like, like there are some people that maybe are around you and it seems like they're kind of plugged into something and you feel more like you're on a rechargeable watch battery. You know, like they've found some kind of source that you don't quite have, you know. And, and so, you know, you look at that and you kind of observe it and you observe them and you kind of think, well, how can I get what they have. And, and maybe sometimes it's not like that where you're comparing yourself with somebody else, but maybe sometimes it's just that you, you have a sense inside maybe that you're missing something or that maybe that there's more. You hear Jesus talk about abundant life and you, you, know, you kind of make an assessment of your own and you say, yeah, I'm thankful, but I don't know if I would call it abundant life on the level of Jesus, you know, and, and, and sometimes we can get this feeling like we're missing out. And, and, and after a while, if, if you continue on that, you can almost maybe feel like you're on a treadmill. You're trying things, you're praying more, you're reading more, you're sinning less, you're cleaning up your life in, in whatever ways that you can, you're, you're observing you know, those that maybe are ahead of you or, or mentoring you, and you're uh, maybe... Um, putting some of their disciplines into your life and, and you're going like that. And after a while, it can almost feel like you're on a treadmill and you could start maybe after a while to get tempted to think that maybe God does play favorites and that there are some people that maybe are a little bit more saved than others. Or maybe there are some people that, uh, that, that God chooses to give more or like, you know, maybe he really wanted to save them, but he puts up with me. And so they have more or, or, or something. You can just go crazy thinking about uh, why it is that maybe someone else seems to have something that you don't. And, and we do this even as churches in areas. Sometimes we think, well, you know, when we talk about revivals is that, well, there was a, a generation that was more chosen than the generation that I'm in right now because God poured out in the great awakening, but he's not pouring out now. And so they have something or they had something that I can't have. 
something that isn't for me at this time. And, you know, we could talk about that regionally or, or churches or areas or with people and the whole thing. But I think it's kind of a common thing for us to sometimes feel like we're missing out or that we don't have uh, something that everyone had. Now, there's a problem with that, that level of thinking when we try to look at it through the lens of the Bible. Because what the Bible tells us in the verses John chapter 1 And it's verse 16, speaking of Jesus, it says that of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. In other words, what the gospel, what the Bible sets forward as a premise is that of his fullness, we have all received. Meaning that God doesn't give someone a fuller portion of himself than he gives someone else or someone a fuller experience of a Christian uh, life than he does someone else or a different area. It says that all of what he gives, all of who he is, has been manifested and has been given to all of his fullness. All of us have received. And I, I know that there's been many times in my life where I have felt like I'm lacking something, that there's something missing. I don't have his fullness and that I'm reaching for something that's just outside of my reach. There's people moving forward around me. There's people enjoying Jesus around me that are more blessed than I am, but I'm missing out. Well, there's a sequence and an interaction that happened here in John chapter 2 that I believe shed some light on some of the reason why we feel this way. And maybe even why this is our experience, that sometimes we feel that we don't have all that we could have. And I want to ask you to do something strange. Before you open your Bible, I want you to do this. I want you to, right now, we're going to have a men in black moment where I'm going to put the white light in front of your eyes, and I'm going to ask you to pretend that you have never, ever, ever read the Bible, read the Gospel of John, or heard any stories about Jesus. Ready? I'm going to flash my fist, and boom, you know nothing. And right now, I am going to read a segment or segments of John chapter 2, leaving out other segments. I'm not going to give you the whole story right now. I'm going to tell you two things that happened, followed by a third thing. And then I'm going to ask you a question just based on your intuition and your judgment that I want you to answer. You don't have to shout it out, but just you can answer it in your mind. You know, But you don't know. You've never read this chapter. You don't know this story. You don't know what's going to happen. So as I start to read it and you go, oh, yeah, I know that passage. No, 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 you don't know this passage. You've never heard this passage before. This is brand new to you. And so I'm going to read the beginning of this. And then uh, follow through and and narrate a little bit, and then we'll continue. Listen to, to, to the gospel. It says this. It says that on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And it says that the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, which was a major blunder and a shame in those days it says that the mother of jesus said to him to jesus they have no wine they've run out of wine and jesus said to her woman what does your concern have to do with me you're coming and barking up the wrong tree about a concern that is not mine he says my hour has not yet come well from that interaction right there mary turns around, she interacts a little bit with the servants of the feast, and by providence, wine is provided. The day is saved. A shipment comes in, and the guests are supplied with wine, but nobody knows how. And so I'm going to read again from the same segment. It says that when the master of the feast had tasted the, wa- uh, tasted the wine, never heard this passage before, And he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, and you have kept the good wine until now. And so so snapshot number one, we're at a wedding where they run out of wine. Jesus says to his mother, this is no concern of mine. Wine is then provided. 
marveled over because of its quality, and the vignette kind of ends. Well, then we get the second half of the chapter, and I'm going to read again now from verse 13, because Jesus finishes the wedding. He then goes to Jerusalem for a feast time, an obligation time, and it tells us this in in verse 13 of the passage. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and dove and the money changers doing business. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem for a feast time that was required by God and that was embraced by the people. When he comes there, he finds a table set and he finds sheep and dove and oxen sacrifices being sold to provide a means for people that traveled a distance to offer something to God, according to Deuteronomy chapter 14, the Bible, that's what they were supposed to be doing. And so he comes to this place, the temple, where they're doing what they're supposed to be doing in the way that God prescribed that they're supposed to be doing it. And Jesus comes and he sees This scene that's taking place right there as he comes into town for the Passover. And so now I want to read you another part of the passage, okay? This is a separate part of the passage. And what I'm about to read to you happened at one of these two scenes. Now, you've never heard this story before. It happened either at the wedding where everyone was drunk Or it happened in the temple where everyone was being obedient. And it says this. It says that when he, that is Jesus, had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out and he overturned the tables and he said to those, well, we'll stop right there. And he said, take this stuff away. Says that a little bit later in the verse. Take this stuff away. Now, you've never read this passage. Drunk people at a wedding with a problem that doesn't concern Jesus. Worshippers, religious people in the temple obeying according to the law. And at one of those places, Jesus takes a whip and he flips over the tables and he says, get this stuff out of here. You've never read this passage before. Which scene did he flip over the tables? Would you think? Would you guess? Would you suppose? Now, we know the story, right? Jesus didn't flip over the tables at the wedding. He didn't make a scene at someone's big day. In fact, if I had read the whole passage, as you all probably know, Jesus was the one, not only did he not flip over the tables, he's the one that provided the wine, about 130 gallons worth of wine. Way more than anyone could drink, no matter how big the wedding was. Jesus provided the wine. Not only did he not flip the tables, he enabled what they were doing. But then he goes to the other scene, and not only does he not condone their biblical behavior, but something that he sees snaps something inside of him, wherein he grabs a whip. And I mean, can you imagine? You don't grab a whip and do nothing with it. He was... His eyes turned red and and probably the veins popped out of his arm and he begins to flip over the tables and say, get these things out of here. And you think, well, what in the world is going on here that Jesus is doing one thing unexpectedly in one scene and then doing another thing unexpectedly in the other scene? Why is this happening? What in the world is going on in the scene And why is it here in the Bible? What does it have to do? Well, well, I want you to consider for a minute what these two tables that we see in this story, what they represent. Well, first of all, we have the wedding. And the wedding represents a a God-ordained or appointed institution that is a representation of the relationship that God wants to have with humanity. It's a relationship that's based upon love and intimacy and communion and vulnerability and unconditional acceptance. It's accompanied by a full trust between two people that are making a pledge to each other. 
It, it carries with it full disclosure of one another's business and, and, and or, you know, orders. It's a re- it represents security and freedom and an unconditional love based on trust. It's a relationship that grows out of, first of all, a courtship and a friendship and then an evaluation and then a choice. And then it, it turns into a covenant and then it continues to grow on from there, the two becoming one and growing in this thing. The only word that the Bible gives to kind of describe the type of relationship in Genesis is the word nakedness. Speaking of the vulnerability and the availability of the two becoming one, that all of me belongs to you and all of you belongs to me, that there's no prenup. Everything is is yours that's mine and everything that's yours is mine. And, And it's all one, this beautiful thing. And what this wedding represents is joy in relationship on the deepest level. And that's what that first table was, where Jesus provided wine that was lacking, the symbol of joy, wine being in the Bible. But then you have the other table. And the second table, this religious setting, we're told that it was during the Passover, the time when they would remember the deliverance of God and bringing them out of Egypt and setting them free. They would offer the lamb of redemption. The place was in the temple, which was important really to the story when you think about all that was going on. The temple was huge in in the worship of the Jews. See, in the days of David and Solomon, when God had done such an amazing work in David's life and revealing himself to David and raising him up and giving him a promise and then making him the king, David had a desire in his heart that was birthed out of a sincere love for God. He he loved God so much, and he was so grateful for everything that God did in his life, that he wanted to build a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem, which was a place where God would be centered in the nation and where he would be available to people. They would be able to come, and they would be able to worship him. And that's what David wanted. He knew that God wanted to be close to people, And so he wanted to make a way where people could be close to God. And so he provided the money and the materials. And then his son Solomon built this temple for the Lord. And when Solomon dedicated the temple in the presence of the entire nation, a prayer of thanksgiving and gratitude was made. And the glory of God, the presence of God, the cloud descended upon the temple. And it was so powerful and God was so tangible and he was so present that the people couldn't even stand up. Not even the priests could stand up. They were floored because they were so overwhelmed by the goodness of God and the spirit of God and the presence of God. His power was there in such an amazing way. And all of that was just a response. It was David's love, the people's love for God, and then God coming and meeting with them. And there was a sincerity in this desire for there to just be this relationship this communion with God. But then over time, over about 300 years, the love for God began to cool and the mechanics of temple worship became a little bit more ceremonial and a little bit less sincere. And the people began to kind of turn their backs on God. They would still come and worship, but it wasn't really worship. It was more out of a debt of obligation than a desire for fellowship. And as the people turned their backs on God and darkness sinfully came into the land, there was judgment that came. The Babylonians came in. They destroyed the temple completely. The Jews were taken off of their land. And there was nobody there in Jerusalem for a a period of 70 years. And it was all because of the breakdown of this relationship. But then after the 70 years were up, God, compassion Mercifully, he brought his people back. They came back into the land and they rebuilt the temple a second time. But this time, the building of the temple was not like David and Solomon where it was just, we want to make God accessible. We love him. And No, this time it was reaching back and trying to recapture something that was lost. It was a feeling of, of, of kind of nostalgic memory. If we could recapture the glory that we lost... And they were going through the motions, but they didn't have the same spirit. There really wasn't the same passion. There wasn't the same love for God. It was more religious. Out of this was birth the Pharisees. 
It was a group of 6,000 selected men, the brightest, the sharpest, the strongest, the holiest. And they became kind of a, a, a moral police force. And the purpose of the Pharisees and, and their job, what they did, is that they would make sure that we never fall into sin again to the level where God has to bring judgment and we're cast out. And so these moral enforcement officers, these Pharisees, they were instructed in the ways of God and they made sure that everyone did everything according to the letter because that's what God wants. And so listen, catch this. The difference between the second temple and the first temple is that the first one was a response based out of love where God was accessible to the people. And the second one became a barrier where if you can climb the steps, the golden rungs on the ladder, and if you're good enough, if you're holy enough, if you're righteous enough, then maybe you can get close to God. And rather than God being accessible, he was inaccessible and really he was unreachable and when jesus came into the temple by the time he comes in the passage that we're reading and he sees the table where they're selling sacrifices no longer was it to help people do something out of gratitude for god but now it was a money-making scheme we can mark up the price on these lambs we can charge exchange rates on the currency that they're bringing from the areas that they're coming And we can really raise funds to make our lives a little bit more comfortable at the expense of these willing worshipers that just want to be close to God. That's what Jesus saw when he came. It was a completely different uh, type of thing. And so the first table, the wedding table, represented joy in relationship on the deepest level. And the second table, the one that Jesus flipped over, represented the vain pursuit of a tyrannical, impersonal self interested God that people could not reach. And so we see that Jesus endorses the one, though it's kind of shady, isn't it? You think, well, it's kind of atypical for Jesus to provide wine. And then he flips over the other. He blesses those that aren't even trying. And then he not only doesn't bless, but he ruins even the possible effort of everyone who's trying to do things right. There was one group, the religious group, that thought they had the presence of God and the favor of God, but they didn't, though they were trying hard. And there was a whole other group that wasn't seeking the things of God, wasn't even trying, and yet amongst that group, Jesus was glad to be there, and he was even providing for them in a sketchy way. Now, here's what I want to share with you tonight, is that both of those groups the ones that it seems like they're not even trying and Jesus is blessing their life. And then those that are trying really hard and yet it feels like they're missing something. They don't have it. In fact, it sometimes feels like Jesus is flipping over tables in their life and everything's going kind of disastrous. Both of those groups exist today. But here's what we know. We know that God is not a respecter of persons that he has made himself universally available to all of humanity that will come to him on terms of grace. So he's not a respecter of persons. We also know that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It says that in John chapter 3, verse 17. So he's not looking to condemn. He's not a God of condemnation. He's not a respecter of persons. And we also know, as we read earlier, that of his fullness have we all received, meaning everyone can have equal access to Jesus. So what's the story? Why is it that some, it seems there's opposition, though they're trying really hard, and others, it seems like they're not trying at all, and it seems like Jesus just provides for them and provides for them and provides for them. Interesting. Why does it seem that some get in and some don't? Now, here's what I believe the issue is many times. Maybe not every time, but many times. The issue is not that Jesus is keeping some people out of an inner experience or an inner place where he is. It's not that he's keeping people out. Listen, it's that they have enclosed themselves in. And there's a world of difference. 
It isn't that, okay, I'm trying to get to where Jesus is and I can't. There's this invisible wall that's keeping me out from, from, from getting in. No, 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 no. That's not the point. The point is often there's a wall that's keeping me in and he's on the outside. And, and ironically, the lock is on the inside of those walls. Those are the boundaries. We build oftentimes walls around ourselves. And sometimes, listen, it's not even that we build walls around ourselves. Sometimes well-meaning pastors, well-meaning mentors build those walls for us. And they say to us, listen, if God is going to move in your life, he's going to move within the confines of these orthodox walls. This is where God is going to move. So be consistent, be involved, be holy, and, and if you build the right life around you at the right time when it's good enough, Jesus is going to blow your mind. There's going to be a, a move of God in your life. And so we say, all right. And so we, we kind of perfect the walls and the whole thing. And we wait. And it seems like it never comes. We look for God in self-constructed confines. Now, the Jews in Jesus' day and also many Christians today make three errors Three things, you could call them walls, three walls that we build around ourselves that keep us from fully experiencing Jesus. The first wall is that we, or they, or those people, immortalize a monument. They immortalize a monument. Now, for them, it was the temple. It was the system. It was the traditions. It was the Pharisees. It was the scribes. It was their laws. It was their code. It was their buildings. It was their gold and their robes and their hats. It was their incense. All of that, that was the system. It was the monument that they had built up. And they said, we have prepared the perfect place for Messiah to come and find us doing exactly as he has seen fit. For you and I, it might be different. We don't have a temple in Jerusalem and it maybe isn't, you know, uh, on those same levels. But for us, oftentimes, the monument that we build is the temple of man. We look at something that God has done in the past through another person. We study the life of someone like Charles Spurgeon, who was a, an amazing Christian man who, who, who lived a, a very fruitful and amazing Christian life. We look at maybe a man or a woman who's alive today, someone who's making an impact for the kingdom of God. And we look at their life and we say, that's what blessing is. And if I can make the monument of my life look like that, then God will do for me what he's doing for them or what he did for them. And so the monument that we can build in our lives is that we can look to a human for something that can only come from God. God doesn't ever ask us to model our life after someone else's in order to try to obtain favor and blessing from his. And when we do, we actually block ourselves off from what he wants to do within our life. You know, there's this amazing thing that happens in the Old Testament when Moses died. Remember Moses? I mean, he was probably one of the most amazing people that lived in the history of God, leading the children of Israel out, Mount Sinai, the law, the ministry, the whole thing. And then, you know, he comes to the end of his life. And, and literally, when you read it at the end of Deuteronomy and the beginning of Joshua, it just says, and Moses died, period, now Joshua. And, and you almost think it's kind of not fair, right? Like, you know, shouldn't Moses get like five or six chapters of like a memorial, and Moses really was a great man. He really did a lot for the people. Got, you know, he really stood, ran the race and kind of got the bum out of the stick, but man, Moses, no, no, none of that. Moses died, period. Now Joshua, the son of Nun. And God just, Moses, he's dead. Moses dead, Joshua picks up. Why? Listen, listen, this is important. Because we all get our opportunity to carry the baton, and someday we die. And when we die, the message goes on. The kingdom goes on. See, the focus is never on the man or the minister, male or female. It's always the message. And so we have our opportunity and then we go. And God isn't looking for a clone of something that was in the past. He's looking to do something with what he has available to him right now. And he didn't make a mistake when he made us. 
And so he's not asking us to model our life after someone else's, what they did and the way that they operated. He's asking us to surrender what we are and who we are to him and allow him to use our lives in a way that he sees fit. And that's what he asks of us. And when we look back in time and try to grab hold of something that was out of a sense of feeling that we lack something, then we're missing the mark. God doesn't want to do that. He wants to reveal himself through us. He's not the I was. He is the I am. And what he calls us to do is to stop thinking that we're lacking something that we should have and just embrace the fact that he accepts and didn't make a mistake when he made us who we are. And so we're not to immortalize a monument. The second mistake that they make that we can duplicate today is that we moralize methods. We moralize methods. Now, listen, God is a God of order. We understand that. The entire universe is arranged and ordered in a particular way. The Holy Spirit is attracted to stewardship and order. I mean, we order our lives. We have an order about the way that we go about things. And that's important. But when we begin to take the order that God establishes in a particular system or life, and we make it a moral issue and not just a systems issue, then we've crossed the line from reality to religion, from relationship to religion. Now, this was constantly something that Jesus had to battle in his day. The methods of the religious people in his day had become something way beyond anything that God had ever prescribed. They had methods for the way they washed their hands. They had methods for the way they would interact with people. They would have methods for who they interacted with. They had methods for when they would fast and when they would eat. They had methods for everything. And what they did is they moralized methods that God never prescribed as requirements. And then if somebody violated the methods that they religiously held, then they were cast off as being heathens or sinners. That's why they would accuse Jesus and say, why do your disciples eat without washing their hands? Why do you talk to that woman who's a Gentile? Why is it that Our disciples and the disciples of John fast, but your disciples are eating and celebrating. How is it that you eat with publicans and sinners and don't separate yourself from them? And Jesus was constantly at odds because he was violating the methods that they had established that were not even there of God. They were attaching a moral component to a system or a structure. Now, the same thing happens today is that there will be a system that forms around a generation within which God is moving. And all of a sudden, the methods of that generation and the order through which they seek God is then made into this structure that this is the way that we're supposed to seek God. This is the style that we're to carry. These are the words that we're supposed to use. These are the clothes that we're supposed to wear. This is the type of music and songs that we're supposed to sing. This is the length of the sermons that we're supposed to preach. This is what the sanctuaries that we worship in are supposed to look like. And we formulate these systems, which is fine. You have to have order. But when we begin to moralize those methods and begin to say that if someone tries to worship God and they step outside of the boundaries of this system or of this way, then those people are wrong and we are right. Or those people are less right and we're more right. What we've done is we're moralizing methods and we're on our way to building walls around us that keep God out. Do you realize that when you read the New Testament, the Gospels, the book of Acts, you can go through the whole thing and you will never find one time ever that Jesus tells his disciples how they're to do anything. He tells them what to do. He'll say, heal the sick, feed the poor, raise the dead. He'll tell them to do, he tells, he never once says, but this is how you do it. He said, go. He gave his disciples authority in the great commission. He says, go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe whatever I've told you, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's all what? This is what you're to do. Go do this. How? How do? You'll figure it out. Why? Why doesn't God give us any instruction as to the how? Because there is so much latitude. Does it ever make you marvel how many new songs can be written? 
Don't you ever think, look, this is the last song that could ever be written because they've all been written. Does it ever make you marvel that there can be a new face? I mean, sometimes you're like, how many faces can you make, God? You know, like there's not even two that are exactly alike. Like you're, you're amazing. And just like those things, we are so unique and individual. And God gives us the latitude to serve him and to fulfill his will and his calling in ways that are unique to who we are. Do you know, God has made millions and millions and millions and millions of trees. But God has never made ever in the history of humanity a single chair or table, not one. He gives us trees, we figure it out, what we've got, and we make tables. And God gives us the latitude and the ability to be creative, to be expressive, to be who we are in the way that we serve him and fulfill the things that he has called us to do. It doesn't change who he is, we can't do that. He's told us who he is. But the way that we go about things can be as diverse as who we are. And God has given us a mind and he's given us a heart and he's given us an appreciation for things. And that's what causes us as humans to flourish. It's it's the mind that God gave us that gave us an iPhone, that gave us a satellite, that gave us the technology that we use every day. They gave us the ability to harness and use waves in order to communicate and send information invisibly. God doesn't do that. We do that. He gave us the tools. And so God gives us his word. He gives us himself. He gives us a heart that loves him and wants to worship. And then he says, now do it. But when we begin to moralize the methods and say, this is right and this is wrong, at that point, we begin to die. We can find God in it, or sometimes we even forbid God from working in particular ways, and I don't think he likes it. The third thing that they did that we also can do is that we can mutilate the mediums. What I mean by that is that we can misinterpret the reason for a particular command or for scripture. We can misinterpret the reason. Now, listen, everything that God says in his word has the intent of blessing our lives and ultimately bringing us closer to him. That's what he wants. That's his motive. That's his reason for telling us the things that he he does. Now, if I, as a minister or as a Christian, take something that God has given for the intent of drawing people close and I twist it and I make it a barrier that separates you from God, then I've mutilated God's medium. He, he gave this thing to bring you close. I'm now using it as a barrier. I'm keeping you away from God. Now, that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing with their table there as they were sitting in the temple. God gave provision for people to worship that couldn't put a lamb on an airplane. Sorry, sir, that's not going to fit in the overhead compartment, you know. But you can buy one of these in Jerusalem so that you don't have to carry it on now. You know, that was God's intent. It was giving people a way to make it easy for them to access God. They took that then and they turned it into a barrier. It became an obstruction. They couldn't get close to God. You're you're, you're killing me. I can't even afford to offer to, to serve God in this thing. Is that really what God wants? Yeah, that's what God wants. Fork it over. You've made a barrier that God wanted to be a blessing. In the same way, God puts a verse in the Bible. It says, be not drunk with wine. Now, what's the reason for that command? Is it because God doesn't want us to have any fun? Is it because he wants to take away the one thing I have that helps me to unwind a little bit? Why does God say that? Here's why. Because he knows that if I'm drunk with wine, he doesn't say don't sip it. He doesn't say don't touch it. He says don't get drunk. Why does God say that? Because he knows that that's a false sense of joy that's going to leave me more empty on the other side than I was beforehand. And it just so happens to be addictive and and it draws me in. And God says that's not going to help you get closer to me. That's actually going to end up pushing you further away from me. And so the purpose of the command is so that you can experience true lasting joy accompanied with freedom. And you're, you've twisted. So now if I take that same command and you say, I'd like to be a part of this fellowship or I, I would like to walk arm in arm with you as we walk towards the kingdom of God together. And I say, well, let me ask you a question. When's the last time you had a little bit too much to drink? And you say, oh, well, uh, you know, I, I have been working out a few things in my life and I, maybe I haven't gotten, well, listen, whoa, 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 stop right there. Get that straightened out. Then come and see me. Do you see what I just did? 
You want to join my church? Sign right here on the thing. I will not drink. You see what, I, what I've done is I've taken something that God meant to bring me close and I've made it a barrier now. This command not to help you, it's to hinder you. And when we mutilate the mediums and we, bring, we build restrictions and walls, we make God unreachable and he leaves. Immortalizing a monument, moralizing methods, mutilating the mediums, the M&Ms of wall building. But I want you to notice what Jesus did in the passage here. I want you to see what he did. First of all, we know he flipped over the tables. But then notice the interaction that took place in verse 18 of chapter 2. I hope by now you've opened your Bible to John chapter 2. After Jesus flips over the table, you can be certain that there were some questions asked concerning his behavior at such a solemn assembly. And it says that the Jews answered Jesus, they answered this action by saying to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered, and he said to them, now this is remarkable. What sign? What what is this pointing to? Why do you do this? What is the meaning behind this? And Jesus said, here's the sign. He said to them, I will destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But it says that he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, he knew that they didn't understand that. But I look at this and I say, Jesus, why of all the things that you can say at that point, why would you say that? They're asking you for a sign or a reason for your actions, flipping over tables like this, breaking the order of this moment, causing a riot drawing attention to yourself. And it's why would you, he says, I'm going to destroy this temple and I'm going to build it again in three days. Why in the world would Jesus do this? Here was the message that Jesus was speaking to them. What he was saying to anyone who would hear it, including you and I here this morning, this evening, sorry, is he was saying, listen, I can do in three days what you can't do in 46 years. I can do for you in three days what you can't do in 46 years. Now, I want you to understand something. This was my problem for years. This was the reason why I felt like I was lacking and everyone else was flourishing. Why they were plugged in and I constantly need to be recharged. Why they're advancing and it seems like I'm regressing in the things of God and not knowing him. Here's the reason. Not yet, not yet, not yet. (laughs) Here's the reason. Because in my mind, my life was the temple. My life is the temple. And when it's constructed right, when everything is gold-plated, when it meets the standard of someone as holy as God or as good as God, when it's right, then the glory will come. On the day of dedication, when everything is in place, when I'm behaving right, when I'm believing right, when I'm sharing right and serving right, and and doing right as a dad and as a husband and as a father and as a friend, and when my my thought life is right, once everything is right, then God is going to come into my life. And my pursuit was towards making my life fit for God to come. And under those circumstances, he could never come. Why? Because when, let me ask you, is it ever good enough? When's it ever good enough? And here's what I found in my own life, is by the time I would finally cross a milestone and fix something, the first things were breaking down. And I was falling back into things that I had gotten past a long time ago at the beginning. And no matter what I could do, no matter what you could do, it's never going to be enough. You can work on your temple for 46 years as long as in your mind it's what you do in your life to get yourself ready for Jesus to come. You will never, ever experience the fullness of what he has for you. See, it's not about what we do in our 46 years of effort. It's about what he did in three days. He gave his life. He was buried in a tomb, and he rose again, and now it's of 
his fullness that we've received, not our own. We are beneficiaries of what he has done. So what then are we to do? What is the action on our part? Here's what it is. What did Jesus say he was going to do? He said he was going to tear it down. He said, I'm not going to build another temple that goes side by side with this one. Tear it down. Here's the message for you tonight. Tear it down. Say it with me. Tear it down. That means stop trying. It means you don't need to read another book by Charles Spurgeon or get another tape set or have someone new pray for you that has something more. Stop. Stop trying. Stop seeking and searching for something that you don't have and just start receiving what he already says that you do. Stop doing things for God and just start being what he's making you as he works in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. Stop waiting for authority from God to move into what he's called you to be and start walking in the authority that he says that he's already given to you. Stop asking if the promises of God really apply to you and start believing that the promises of God really do apply to you. That's what we're called to do. Tear down the religious thing of thinking that you're ever going to be good enough to receive and just start receiving it. You know, sometimes I get secretly excited when I see someone quit. You, know, you see someone that's just frustrated and they're just like, ah, I'm done with this God thing. And sometimes I get excited when I see that. Because sometimes, sometimes we try so hard to find God that we don't sit still long enough for him to find us. And sometimes when a person just stops trying, it's then that they start receiving the things that God wants to do in and through their lives. He calls us to tear down these walls that we've built up. I love what it says in verse 2 of John chapter 2. It says that there was a wedding feast at Cana of Galilee, and it says that Jesus and his disciples were invited. Which disciples were invited to the wedding? All of them. All of them. It doesn't say the ones that walked closest with Jesus. It doesn't say the ones that were of the sect of the Nazarenes. It doesn't say the ones that were... No, no. All of them. And I want you to hear this tonight. You have a seat at the table. You have a seat at God's table of his fullness. We have all received and God will not be confined to the walls that we build and he will not surrender to the structure that we think that he will fill when we build it in our lives and if we don't hear this message if we don't understand the truth of what's being put forward here then 46 years of life can pass and we can miss out on what Jesus wants to do with us you can miss out you won't recognize Jesus when he comes to you because Jesus might want to come into your life in the form of a preacher that has a mohawk and tattoos up and down his arms and his legs. But if that's not in, in, in the structure of, of, of the way that God works, then you might miss it when Jesus tries to meet with you in that way. You might miss it because Jesus might want to put you in a church in one city where the pastor of that church is in another city and the message is coming via a screen that drops. But, but that might be the place, the way that Jesus wants to reach you at that season of your life. But if that's not within the context of what you think is acceptable, then you'll miss Jesus when he wants to meet with you in that way. You might miss Jesus because Jesus might want to use a person in your life that maybe you don't agree with 100% on what they believe in. Maybe they're even outside of the confines of the Christian faith, but God wants to use them in your life the same way that he used ravens that didn't go to church to feed Elijah. You might miss him. Or it might be that you... He might give you kids that can't see Jesus through the lens of your church culture because it's easy for us sometimes to confuse Christianity and culture and sometimes we can blur the lines of those two things and the cloud of our church culture restricts their view and while we're trying to raise them in the things of God within the confines of what we've made God that he never said that he is, 
they're already forming values that are void of Christ because they don't fit in the nicely molded form that we've made that's contrary to the way that God has made them. And so it's important for us to tear down the walls. We could miss him. We might miss Jesus because he might choose to reveal his glory, like it says in verse 11, in a room full of drunk, unbelieving family members. And we might say, well, that's not the way Jesus works. He doesn't do it that way. But maybe he will. He did. He did it here. He could do it again. Some of us here tonight have beautiful temples. Now you guys can come. (laughs) But you've run out of wine. You have the form, but you lack the joy. You don't sense the presence of God in your life. It's not real in your life. And here's the message that I want you to hear tonight. This is the message that it's taken me too long to give to you here. The message is this is that what you can't do in 46 years of trying, Jesus did in three days. He built the temple, the temple of his body. It's not about me or us. It's about him and what he has done. You know, it's amazing when you read the the whole chapter, and I hope that you will on your own, and you see the wine that Jesus provided for those wedding guests. There were three things that were paramount in in that miracle when Jesus provided the wine that was lacking. It says that they came, he put it in stone pots, he made it out of water, and it was immediate. In other words, what God wants to do in your life, he's going to do it through the common things, the everyday things, the stone jars, the clay pots, the things that are just around you all the time. It's not going to be some miraculous thing. Just the common, everyday things, that's where Jesus is going to meet you. He's accessible. He's as accessible as water. As accessible as water, and he's as immediate as now. If you look at verse 8 in the text, it says, Jesus said, now bring some of the water to the man of the feast. See, it's not something that I have to do. There's no hurdle that I have to clear. It's now. And I have the choice of whether or not I'm going to make it about me and what I can do or am I going to make it about him and what he has done. And and we can stand together and we say, Lord, tear down the walls. Jesus, we come to you tonight and we just ask you, Lord, as we think of these things, your word tells us that you are the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Your word tells us that you are his glory. And that it's of your fullness that we've all received. And right now, Lord, right where we're standing, we ask that you would show us the areas of our life where we have enclosed ourselves from experiencing you through the walls that we've built. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways in which we've tried to be like other people. Forgive us for the ways in which we've confined you out by moralizing methods and things that you've never said, cutting ourselves off from what you want to do. Please help us, Lord. And Jesus, we pray that we would each experience you in a real and rich and full way. We believe tonight, Lord, that you made us for such a time as this. You didn't make two of someone else, and none of us, you made us. And Lord, we want to be used of you. We want to know you. So would you help us, Lord? Would you bring us clarity in application of applying these things to ourselves? Lord, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.